Hi, hey, welcome to the Cordial Catholic Podcast, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and if there was one thing I noticed as I was becoming Catholic, it was how little I knew about Catholicism and the Catholic Church from actual Catholic sources. This podcast hopes to fill that gap. We have Catholic conversations with actual Catholic thinkers from the heart of the Catholic Church. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Robert Del Fino to talk about Thomas Aquinas, a primer on St. Thomas Aquinas, one of the most important thinkers in the history of the Catholic Church. We dig deep, real deep, into science and religion, into Aquinas' five ways for proving God, and I think you'll love this podcast. I think anyone listening to this podcast, Catholic, non-Catholic, non-Christian, can take something away from this. We dig deep, but Dr. Delfino has a fantastic gift for explaining this deep philosophical content with ease and making it accessible to even lay person like me. It's great. I think you'll enjoy it, so please listen. Welcome back to the Cordial Catholic Podcast. Our guest this week is Dr. Robert Delfino. He's an associate professor of philosophy at St. John's University in New York City. He received his PhD in 2001 from the State University of New York at Buffalo, where he specialized in metaphysics, medieval philosophy, and Thomas Aquinas. His current research interests include metaphysics, ethics, and the relationship between science, philosophy, and religion. And his book, for our purposes here today, is called Does God Exist? A Socratic Dialogue on the Five Ways of Thomas Aquinas, co-authored with Matt Frad. It was published in 2018, and it was my go-to book for uh, people I recommend who might want to learn more about Aquinas and, and the Five Ways. I think it's a fantastic book, so I'm really excited to have Dr. Delfino on the podcast today. Hello, Dr. Delfino. How are you? Hello, Keith, and thanks for having me. And also, thanks for the kind words about the book. I'm glad you like it. Hey, no problem. You know, I just, I do, uh, I do love the dialogue format of this book, especially. I find it very accessible and easy to understand and to unpack. And that leads into my first question. The book is a dialogue between an atheist and a believer. And in the course of the conversation, uh, you unpack Thomas Aquinas's famous, in quotes, proofs for God. So, first of all, I wonder if you can talk to us about the dialogue format of the book in particular, because I think it's very helpful for the reader to understand this, these dense topics in this dialogue format, and especially how to anticipate the potential objections, because you have the atheist and the believer in dialogue here. So, I wonder what can be said about the dialogue format like this. And I understand Aquinas' own work is, is similar. He presents... Uh, objections and then his responses in his own work? Well, that's a mouthful of a question. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> so I've got a lot of things going on there. All right. Well, first, let me give a shout out to Matt Frad because I really want to thank him. Um, about two years ago, he uh, he gave me a draft of, of the book he had written. 
And it was a dialogue. So that was his idea. I'll talk more about uh, the virtues of a dialogue in a moment. And, um, you know, he wanted uh, he, the the, um, the guy who ran the publishing company on Root Books and Media, Sebast- Dr. Sebastian Mafood, um, Matt consulted with him and said, why don't we uh, show the draft to a philosophy professor who does this kind of stuff and see what he thinks. Now, I had been teaching a summer grad course in Aquinas at Holy Apostles College. And so since uh, Sebastian Mafood works there, he, he emails me one day and uh, he says, yeah, take a look at this book. It's on the five ways. I know you do stuff on the five ways. I go, OK. And I like a lot a lot of what Matt did. Uh, the dialogue form is great. I mean, one of the nice things about a dialogue form is, you know, it kind of mirrors our day to day life. Right. We kind of live in the story. We meet people. We talk to them. We ask questions. So in that sense, it's very helpful for beginners. Matt wanted uh, this book to be accessible to a wide audience. I, I tend to think of it as uh, college age and above, or perhaps a senior in high school, but college age and above. And um, so I took a look at the book, and I liked a lot of what he did, although I disagreed with some of the presentations of the third, fourth, and fifth way in particular. So at one point, I'm talking with Matt, with Matt and I'm giving him suggestions, and he asked me, hey, would you like to co-write it with me? So I spent the next year rewriting about half of it. And Matt was very great about that, too. He took a lot of my suggestions to heart. Only a few things that he suggests making changes. So so what's great about the dialogue style, first of all, it has a long pedigree in the history of philosophy. I mean, Plato was the master of the dialogue, <laughs> and, we can, and we can't surpass him here. But what's great about it is, is, you know, as things are introduced and explained along the way, objections are raised along the way. And I think that's really helpful for learning. Now, there's one last thing I want to say about the book before we move on, though. There's a second part to the book. It's about almost the last 50 pages. And whereas the main dialogue is about the first 100 pages, uh, the second part is if you want to dive deeper into this stuff. So, for example, chapter 10 uh, begins the second part of the book, and it's a small glossary of philosophical terms and concepts so that somebody who hasn't studied philosophy uh, before can really get into it and dive into it. Chapter 11 gives some short synopses of each of the five ways, so that's always helpful. Chapter 12 gives gives a list of suggested readings for beginners, intermediates, and advanced readers. So you can go as deeply as you want down this rabbit hole. And then uh, after my afterward, there are 128 footnotes with references to and excerpts from many scholarly articles and books. So this is not just a book for beginners. I mean, it's fine for beginners, but if you read the second half and you really dive into it and pursue some of the suggested readings and read some of those footnotes, you can really go deep into these things. And so in that sense, I'm really happy with the way it turned out. Oh, what a mouthful of an answer. I don't know if I answered all your stuff, but I, I tried oh, to. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to. Oh, boy. No, that's fantastic. And you know what? I've actually, uh, I was saying to you before I started recording the podcast, how I really, I enjoyed and recommended this book quite a bit to people. And I have, I've dug into those footnotes even. I don't remember what the, what the subject was, but I was looking at one particular thing that, uh, had been mentioned in the dialogues about the, uh, different ways. And I dug into those footnotes, ended up following that down quite a rabbit hole. You know, I found an article that, that unpacked that further. And from there, I found more articles that, so you're right. Those those footnotes are very helpful in digging deeper and deeper and deeper into this topic, for sure. Well, I'm glad you found them helpful. So I'd like to start out just by talking about, first of all, who Aquinas is, um, his importance to Catholicism and to Christianity and philosophy. And then what are these, uh, in quotes, what are these ways that you talk about in this book 
um, which Aquinas puts forward for, in quotes, proving God. So who was he and what are these five ways? Can we start there? Okay. So, St. Thomas Aquinas. Hmm, where to begin? Well, you know, he's probably one of the giant thinkers in the history of, well, probably the whole church. I mean, he's, he's pre-Reformation, but he's certainly in most circles associated with Roman Catholicism. So he was a 13th century Dominican friar. He was a theologian and he was a university professor. Now he's a saint and doctor of the church. And as I mentioned a moment ago, he's a member of the Dominican order. Uh, so the Dominicans were founded in 1216 by St. Dominic, of course, uh, to fight heresy in southern France. France is always the problem. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the problem was the uh, Albigensians. They were promoting this neo-Manichaeanism heresy. The, the short of it is, for the, I don't want your audience to start screaming like, what is Delfino doing? The short of it was, the heresy was something like this. Matter is evil and spiritual stuff is good. But of course, I think most Christians nowadays would say that everything that God has made is good. So we should love the body too, and food is good. The problem is, you know, we, we shouldn't overdo it with the body. Things of the spirit are more important, but the body is still good. So the Dominicans were about preaching. They're known as the Order of the Preachers. OP is the uh, designation after the name. So Thomas, literally, was one of the best of the Dominicans. I mean, the guy was a genius. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't get things wrong. He does. He's, he's human. But Let's just put it this way. After 2,000 years of Roman Catholic Church history, there are only 36 people who made the prestigious list of the doctors. It's not like Doctor Who, although that's a really cool show. It's like the, the doctors of the church. I mean, these are people <laughs> who are in elite company, right? T to be a doctor of the church, you have to exhibit great holiness, masterful teaching, have an extensive body of writings that gives authentic expression to the beliefs of the church. And in 1879, Pope Leo XIII declared Thomas the, quote, prince and master of all the scholastic doctors, end quote. And later on in 1880, he, he said that Thomas Aquinas was the patron of all Catholic universities, academies, colleges, and schools throughout the world. So he's a big shot. Now, I do want to say something, though. I'm sure many members of your audience are, are also, they're also non-Catholics in your audience. You know, he, you tend to think people tend to think of Aquinas as like this big Catholic guy, but to be honest, he really was very humble, and he, and he and even though of course he fought heresy, he really wanted people not just to believe things dogmatically, but to try to understand them as much as possible. He sincerely believed that God gave us intel, intelligence and intellects so that we could understand the truth at least to some degree. I mean, humans do have limitations. Let me read you. A very short, it's just a very short paragraph of what Thomas Aquinas says about teaching. See, what he would do is, when he's at the university, he would give a morning lecture. And then later on in the day, there would be something called the dispute. Now, during the dispute, students could ask him any questions they wanted. They could ask Aquinas objections. You know, They could challenge his thinking, and they were challenged to think on their own. So the medieval university was actually a little more free-spirited and critical um, openness and, you know, than people think. And Thomas talks about the, the great importance of these sessions, these disputes. And he says that it was, and this is a quote now, translation, of course, less to push error out than to lead the listeners, the students, into the truth that they strive to understand. Accordingly, they must be carried, he's talking about the students here, the students must be carried by reasonings in order to get to the root of the matter and help to see for themselves 
how what is asserted is true. So they have to see it for themselves. And he continues. He says, otherwise, if the appeal is merely to bear authorities, then all the teacher does is to certify to his listeners that such, in fact, is the answer to the problem. But apart from this, the students would not have gathered any reason for it and, and, and they would have had no understanding and they would go away empty. So you see, he's really about critical thought and reasoning and not just believing this stuff dogmatically. It's about trying to understand as much of it as you can. And I think in that sense, he's a great teacher. He's humble, he's profound, and he's wise. Hmm. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. Hey, I've heard one objection before we go any further into what his five ways are. I've heard one objection from, uh, I guess, friends of of mine, associates, people I've bumped into on the internet and in person who've said that Aquinas kind of just cribbed his stuff from Aristotle or just borrowed his stuff from other places. And and his contribution to, say, philosophy or theology was just to borrow other stuff and and baptize it as Christian. What would you say to something like that, briefly? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, what can I say to something like that? All right. Well, first we have to talk about some cultural differences. Um, most of the thinkers in the Middle Ages, the Christian thinkers, of course, um, they didn't see pursuing philosophy as coming up with new novel theories. You know, no, they, they, they saw themselves as synthesizers of the best stuff in the past to help them find the truth. You know, so the goal wasn't, you know, they weren't looking for novelty and they weren't always looking for, you know, I mean, they were looking for new insights, but but. It, it was all in the service of a great truth. And in the case of Aquinas, who was a theologian, it was in service of the church and of God because, you know, God had revealed important truths to mankind and we wanted to understand these as much as possible. But I would say to those people who basically say that Aquinas is just Aristotle on steroids that they haven't read him. I'll give you one big example and then we can move on. So, look, the history of philosophy in some ways mirrors the development of a person. You know, when you're uh, when you're a little baby, you rely mostly on the senses, right? You see something shiny and you want it. Or, you know, there's something sweet and you eat it, right? So the senses. As you grow older, you start to think more conceptually. Like, I think my brother lied to me. I think I want revenge or something like that, right? <laughs> you, get, you, get, you get all this conceptual stuff. And if you look at the history of philosophy, the earliest, you know, the pre-Socratic philosophers, the philosophers before Socrates, they focus a lot on the senses, on the material world. In fact, they're often called materialists for that reason. But then slowly in the history of philosophy, things become more, a little more conceptual, a little more, con a little more abstract. And then you get Plato, who starts to really hone in on the notion of the immaterial, the non-physical, the spiritual, if you will. Right? He talks about a world that exists after we die. He talks about the non-material forms. So now you can see philosophy is progressing. The next huge leap, I would argue, and others have argued, in the history of philosophy is, you know, we start with the senses, we go to the concepts, is, but then is to go to existence, the judgment of existence. So what the heck am I talking about? All right. So when you walk through the park, you might see two men sitting on a bench. Maybe one man looks kind of pale and he's throwing up and the other man is just sitting there reading a newspaper. Conceptually, you abstract that, well, that's a man and that's a man. They're both human beings. They're the same conceptually. But one is vomiting and the other looks fine. So there's, there's an act of the mind known as judgment where you judge how that man is existing. He's throwing up. He's ill. He's not well. 
and the other man seems fine. So one of the most powerful things that we do in our ordinary everyday experience is we judge how things are existing. And it was the focus on existence in, in this very special way that Aquinas really dives into that Aristotle never took to that level. Now, Aquinas was probably partially inspired to go down this natural route because, you know, in the Old Testament, God describes himself as I am who I am. You know, he's the great I am, the great he who is existence itself, right? So he had a little extra nudge or push, if you will. But even using our just natural powers, anybody can focus on, you know, questions of existence like, why do I exist? Why is there a world at all? And when you mine that philosophically, that's what Aquinas did. That's his rich contribution. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. So speaking of this rich contribution, then one of the major things he is given to, he's gifted to us as Catholics and um, gifted to philosophy are these five ways. Can you tell us what these ways, uh, just briefly, like an overview of what these ways are trying to do and, and where they come from? Then I think we'll dig into maybe one of those ways at least, but just an, an overview. What are these ways and where do they come from to begin with? So, like I said earlier, Aquinas is, is a great synthesizer. He read a lot of the authors and thinkers who existed before him. And almost, I think all of the five ways, really, um, historically are rooted in other thinkers. So, for example, the first way from motion or change is can be found in Aristotle. But for Aristotle, actuality is form. But for Aquinas, like I said, existence is what is actuality, right? Something isn't actual if it doesn't exist. I wasn't actually a dad or a father until my children existed. Prior to that, I was just hopeful or something like that. Now I'm condemned to little sleep. But anyway, <laughs> so the first way, <laughs> you know how it is, you have a four-year-old. Amen. Yeah, there you go. All right. So um, the first way is about change and motion, and that comes from Aristotle, but Aquinas transforms it in light of uh, existence. The second way also comes from Aristotle. Uh, it's about efficient causality. Um, the third way comes from the great Islamic theologian, Ibn Sina, known as Avicenna in the West, and um, Aquinas makes some modifications to it. Um, the fourth way is the gradation of perfection. Th this is the Neoplatonic one. Um, it's escaping me now, some of the sources. And the fifth one is from um, various sources, John Damascene and also Ibn Rushdi, another famous Islamic theologian known as uh, Averroes. Uh, and so the, the, so the fifth way is about how there's order in nature and things seem to act for an end and a purpose, and the, and the exquisite order in nature seems to require an intelligence behind it. Um, whereas the previous one, the fourth way, is about how there's a gradation of perfections in nature. Some things are better than others, like stones are pretty, but it's better to be a plant because it's alive. And humans are even better than plants because not only are they alive, they're also intelligent. So it's about gradations of perfection and getting to a perfect being. By the way, my, my favorite is the third way, because the third way is about why does anything exist at all? Uh, we notice that beings around us only have existence contingently, uh, but it turns out in order for them to exist at all, there has to be a necessary being which would be god hmm. well i definitely want to dig into uh, at least one of the ways in a bit more detail so maybe i'll let you choose um so these ways were these kind of the was this the main focus of aquinas's life and work or where do these fit into the scope of things he was doing well you know it's funny um <laughs> if aquinas is in any um 
philosophy book, uh, like an anthology or a collection of stuff, almost always what's in there is the five ways. So some people might think that like that's a big thing uh, for him. I mean, it's important, but the guy wrote almost 10 million words in Latin, and the five ways are only a very short uh, sketches of uh, his philosophy, if you will. Um, a, lo- uh, a lot of his- he says a lot of other amazing things in ethics and in logic and uh, and in metaphysics in general, besides the five ways. So. I would say it's important, but it, it's not definitely not the bulk of his work. Okay. Well, I do want to unpack at least one of these five ways with you in a moment here. But I was wondering if you could say, first of all, um, because I know this is part of your area of interest, about the perceived conflict between philosophy and science or God and science or religion and science. Uh, because, um, I mean, studies of of people leaving religion are, are demonstrating that there is this perceived notion that science fundamentally disproves religion and that we're wasting our time doing religion that's already been proven to be false, in quotes. What do you think, um, what would you say about this? Or what do you think Aquinas might say about this? <laughs> well, look, it's a very complex thing, science and religion. I actually teach a whole course on science and religion at St. John's University. But let me make a few little, you know, highlights and bulleted points. So in the last two or three centuries, there have been a lot of cultural changes in the West. One of the big cultural changes, um, well, let me talk a little provincially. So, you know, in the United States of America uh, in the 50s and even I think part of the 60s, we had prayer in public schools. Uh, Not only do we not have prayer in public schools anymore, uh, they don't teach philosophy in public schools. They don't teach really classics that much anymore in public schools. So people don't really have a philosophical background. In my own life, I went to public school my whole life and uh, until I got to you know, a, a Roman Catholic college for my undergraduate work. And uh, so I never really knew about philosophy until um, I think the age of 19. So not having a background in philosophy is one of the problems. Another problem is, there's, and this is a huge historical topic, but religion nowadays in many parts of the Western culture has been reduced to a mere act of faith as if it's just something that, you know, reason can't talk about. It's just you either believe it or you don't. It's been sort of expelled from the public square, if you will. Everybody talks about separation of church and state, even though that phrase is not in the United States Constitution. But anyway, um, most people don't even realize that there are two different parts to Catholic theology, right? I don't know if you knew this when you were a Protestant, but there's natural theology, right? It's the part of Catholic theology where it asks, what can we know about God through our natural, ordinary powers of knowing, you know, seeing, hearing, smelling, and reasoning, apart, you know, without the Bible, without revelation, without any of that. So that's natural theology. What can we know about God through our natural knowing powers? And then there's the other part of Catholic theology, supernatural theology, or sacred theology, where that's based on the Bible and revelation and things like that. That's where faith comes in. But most people don't even know that distinction. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think that if you're talking about God, if you're talking about religion, it can't be a matter of reason. It's just a matter of faith. And that's like a conversation stopper. It's like, it's over. Right? Um, Another problem is a lot of people have the wrong conception of God. They think of God either as the big man in the sky or uh, as some kind of being in the world, maybe some kind of angelic being or something like that. Uh, and they have a hard time trying to understand how you would integrate that understanding of God with like the modern sciences like physics and chemistry. Of course, Aquinas would say that God is not a thing that has existence. He's not like a tree 
which is a kind of plant that has existence. He's not like an angel, which is a kind of spiritual being that has existence. For some of you, I'm sure in the, some of your audience now is probably going, what are you saying? The, the, the scriptures say that God is spirit. Yeah, yeah, but God's not an angel. He's being itself, which is something we could talk about a little later. So he, he's more like a verb rather than a noun, if you want me to put it in a real um, you know, quick and dirty way. Um, also, the, one of the big problems with the science and religion stuff is that there are these perceived conflicts. Evolution would probably be the biggest one. You know, some people look at some Christians who claim that the Earth is very young, you know, maybe 10,000 years old, maybe 6,000 years old. And that, of course, conflicts with geology, which says that the planet Earth is over 4 billion years old. And, and then they'll say that, you know, some Christians will say, well, God just created everything in, in the way it was now, you know, rabbits, cats, dogs, humans. And But what about evolution? And there seems to be a conflict here. But at least for Catholic philosophy and theology, there really is no genuine conflict once you understand two things. One, exactly uh, what kind of, well, how God acts in the world and how he doesn't, and God's relationship, uh, well, the world's relationship to God, let's put it that way. Um, and also a proper understanding of evolution, because unfortunately some people, uh, like William Provine and Richard Dawkins, sometimes smuggle into modern uh, evolutionary biology, uh, materialism or atheism indirectly, and that's no good. That go goes beyond science. Uh, the last two things I'm going to say is that also since the 60s, uh, it seems like there's been this narrative that a lot of people were hoping that science would replace religion because religion is superstition and it's not reasonable, although I think that's a gross misunderstanding. And of course, there's all this church corruption right now, which is not helping. It's, it's depressing me as well. <laughs> <laughs> what people probably don't know historically is that the church actually um, encouraged the study of nature and thus science, and they did this in three ways. You know, they preserved ancient Greek philosophy and mathematics, and they, re they wrote over those manuscripts by hand so that they would be preserved, and they didn't just preserve them in some moldy library. Uh, the church commissioned universities where these texts were taught and um, the third reason that the church helped science was that the church gave a theological reason why we should pursue science. And the idea is that the world uh, is able to be understood by us because God is intelligent. So the cause of the world is intelligent, and we have some intelligence. So, you know, we can understand the world. So this gave like a theological uh, reason to pursue science. And actually, there's a great book your your audience might be interested in. I highly recommend it. It's from Harvard University Press, which is no shill for the Catholic Church. It's called Galileo Goes to Jail and Other Myths About Science and Religion. And it's a collection of essays by different authors, and many of them are atheists and agnostics. And here's just one great quote, and then we can move on. So it talks about how the Catholic Church um, built all these universities. So here's the quotation, quote, the proliferation of universities between 1200 and 1500 meant that hundreds of thousands of students were exposed to science in the Greco-Arabic tradition. If the medieval church had intended to discourage or suppress science, it certainly made a colossal mistake in tolerating, to say nothing of supporting, the university. End quote. That's pages 21 and 22. So... Yeah, I don't really think there's a, a genuine conflict between science and religion. I think we just have to be very careful not to have a wrong conception of God or a wrong conception of evolution and so forth. Oh, that's a fantastic uh, answer. Thank you for that. And thank you for that resource. I'll put that in the show notes for our listeners to find as well. I have one thought. You know, I don't often 
try to tackle atheism in my articles head on or in, in my podcasting. But I did once. I once wrote an article that was titled something like, uh, religion makes more sense than your mind bending atheism. And it was intentionally provocative. But in there, I, I unpacked a conversation that I had, uh, some friends of mine, some evangelical friends of mine have this coffee shop dialogue thing that happens once a month. And one month was a discussion about science and religion. And so I, I went, uh, to this dialogue in the coffee shop and I was talking to this person. We were talking about science and I think they were, they were doing, doing their undergrad in, in some kind of science field. The conversation came up, came around to the idea of, of what you just talked about of, of, Catholicism and, and the church encouraging the sciences. And, you know, it came, we came to this point in our conversation where we both kind of went like, you know, doesn't it, doesn't having faith, having some kind of grounding in, in religion and, and a creator greater than us, shouldn't that encourage us to be curious? And shouldn't science, you know, the more we discover about in science that points towards this great unknown creator God, shouldn't that make us uh, more filled with wonder and more filled with um, this sense of awe and reverence. Like it, it seems like it should be this kind of cyclical thing. The more we learn, the more we're kind of, you know, does that make sense? Maybe I'm, uh, drawing out something that you were hinting at, but almost as if, um, science makes more sense if there's some kind of, uh, intelligence or reason behind the world or something like that. Well, that's what I think. Yeah. And I think the more you investigate as a scientist, uh, with that sense of of wonder, the more you'd likely to increase in your faith. Like these things are mutually edifying, right? Because the more you discover, the more you're in awe of these things that God, these laws, these properties, these incredible things that God has 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 placed in the world for us to discover. I don't know. Well, you know, Albert Einstein once said, and, and this is a, I guess, fa- fairly close translation of the German. He said, "Quote." The eternal mystery of the world is its comprehensibility, end quote. So the idea is, I think he was amazed at how we lowly humans can come up with things like calculus and math and, and, and calculate, you know, light years and galaxies and the Big Bang and things like this. And it's like, it almost seems, you know, unbelievable that we could do this and it works and it has predictive power. And I think somewhere behind... Uh, him in heaven, uh, the angels are like, well, of course, <laughs> because there's a deep wisdom and intelligence behind the universe, and some of it was given to you as humans, and that's why you can reverse engineer it to some degree. And the irony is for, you know, for the atheist scientists, and, and believe me, as persons, I wish them the best. I, I want them to be happy, but I would say to them, you know, it seems to me that you're kind of left with this unhappy, irresolvable conclusion that at its deepest base in an atheist universe, the universe is somewhat absurd. There's really no rhyme or reason to anything. It just is in a weird, mysterious, absurd, brute fact kind of way. And and yet everything is so remarkably mathematical and orderly. And it just it just doesn't seem right. Hmm. And that's where I that's where I have to say I I get to. I'm not a scientist, but as I observe the natural world. I find it much easier, easier in a sense to accept that there must be a creator and intelligence behind why things operate the way they do than it be random something, right? Well, real quick before we go to one of the five ways, one of the problems with this whole um, topic with, with the science is, you know, a lot of people think 
that when we want to explain something, whether it's evolution or a lightning bolt uh, coming, you know, during a thunderstorm or something like that, you know, there, there's an underlying assumption for many of them that, well, there's just one explanation. So in other words, either it's a scientific explanation or you say something like God did it. But that's actually a false dichotomy. It's not that there's just one level of explanation. If that were true, then we would have to decide between God doing it in his own way and, and uh, the forces of nature doing it in their own way. But what Aquinas says, and he, and he had this back in the 13th century, he's like, no, there's two levels of causality at the same time, and we shouldn't confuse the two. So let me give you a little analogy to, to draw out what I'm talking about. So take a laptop computer, right? A lot of people have Microsoft Word or some kind of Office software on their computer, a word processor, right? And, uh, you know, when you're typing on there, the, the program say, auto-saves every few minutes, whether you do it or not, because um, that's what it does. Now, on, the, on one level, the laptop computer, the physical thing on your desk, I know everybody has tablets nowadays, but I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm old school, I'm doing the laptop here. The, uh, the laptop computer on your desk, when you go away, maybe to get a drink or go to the bathroom, right, it's auto-saving. It's doing everything by itself. The CPU is working with the hard drive and, and the software code. It's all doing it. You, as a human being, don't have to tell it to, to save. It's doing it all on its own. That's one level of causality. It's seamless. It has no gaps, okay? But in order for that Microsoft Word to autosave every few minutes, there has to be a second, higher, different level of causality. You know, the programmer who wrote the code made it so that it would autosave all the time. So... Here we have two levels of causality, right? The programmer and then the physical laptop. And both are necessary for that laptop to autosave. Well, it's the same thing in the world. God has given electrons inclinations to bind to protons. He's given material things, natures, and powers, right? Uh, so they can do some things on their own, but they wouldn't be here and they wouldn't have those natures were it not for God. So the a lot of people with the science thing, they don't get how... You know, it's not science or God, it's both, and you have to understand different levels of causality, but that requires philosophical education, which is sadly lacking in the Western culture nowadays. Oh, that's that's very well put. And this is why I asked you, I mean, the science question, because to me, when you read Aquinas and his philosophy, it it fits so well with science. It it fills in those gaps that science can't, I don't think, answer, right? Well, it's really not about gaps. Um, see, on the physical level, it's not as if uh, – like, for example, one of the famous examples is from Michael Behe. He's a Catholic biologist, but I, dis I disagree with his, um, his take on this. He's one of these intelligent design guys, right? And he would say something like this. He would say, well, you know, if you look at the tail of a bacteria, right? Think of a sperm cell with a little flagella. Well, flagellum is the singular at the end, right? The little tail can wiggle so that the sperm cell can move, right? Okay. Well, if you look at the flagella, that's the plural, of bacteria, right? If you actually go on the microscopic level, it's, it's pretty intricate. Um, if you look at the parts, it almost looks like the outboard motor of a boat, like if you're, you know, in a, with a motorboat. And um, so Behe thinks that this is too complex uh, to have arrived gradually through evolution because if you take one part out of the 50 needed for the motorboat – the thing won't spin, which means it won't help the uh, bacterium to move. So it's no good. It has to be produced all at once. Nature can't do this. So God must step into uh, material causality and fill a gap in nature. But I don't think this is correct. Um, 
God, if it's true that God is all powerful, he's not going to make a nature that's so faulty and broken that he constantly has to intervene on the physical level, like a mechanical engineer or, or a car mechanic to constantly fix it. That would make no sense. So rather, I think what's happening is he's on a different level. He can design uh, things with natural inclinations and natural powers and the right constants and the right strength of gravity and the right this and the right that so that uh, things can evolve to some extent. Now, of course, they have to exist first before they evolve. So there has to be a kind of creation, right? Otherwise, there would be nothing and nothingness can evolve. But there's different levels of causality. God is not a gap filler on the physical level. He always exists on a higher level of causality that works in conjunction with the creaturely level or the physical level of causality. I don't know if that helps. Yeah, I, I'm laughing because I think I must have. I think I chose the wrong word when I said gaps. <laughs> that's all right. I think, I, it's just, that's a know, great the God explanation. Of the gaps is one of, <laughs> thanks. No problem. It's just that the God of the gaps is one of those things that uh, atheists love to bring up all the time. You know, they say we can't explain something in science, so you say God does it, but then 50 years later we explain how science can do it. So there's no need for God. But no, that's missing the point. God's on his own level of causality. And um, it's not about filling gaps. But anyway, let's yeah, I think I think I meant the gap between like, you know, what would have caused the first bang to bang, right? What's that initial mover? Like, I mean, science can't, scientism can't explain those kind of metaphysical things, right? And that's where philosophy and I think Aquinas's five ways steps in. Well, scientism, and for the audience, notice the end of the word, ism, I-S-M. There are a ton of isms, right? Communism, feminism, scientism. Scientism is its own thing. It's strictly speaking, in my view, not science. You know, scientism is the view, which is really a kind of a philosophical view, ironically, but it's, it's the view that only the natural sciences, things like physics and chemistry and biology, give us knowledge. But it's actually a false teaching because in order to pursue science, whether it's biology, chemistry or physics, you, you can't pursue science as a scientist unless you already have some non-scientific knowledge, right? You have to know that you exist. You have to have language. You have to formulate a hypothesis. You have to think about what kind of experiment am I going to design? Are there flaws in this design? You have to think about mathematics. You have to think about logic. You have to draw conclusions from the data you've collected. You need a ton of non-scientific or pre-scientific plus common sense knowledge to pursue science at all. So the idea that only the natural sciences can give us knowledge and that we don't need philosophy or anything else, it's just self-refuting. It's not true. In fact, scientism, the view that only science gives us knowledge, you can't perform a scientific experiment to prove that. <laughs> you can't give scientific evidence for it. So it, it just kills itself. Uh, I wasn't sure if... But I, I think your point, though, is that as good as science is, and it certainly is good, is that we need other things beside it, like philosophy, right? That was your point? Yeah, I think so. Right, okay. Yeah, and I was, you know, when I encountered uh, Aquinas and his his ways, uh, I was... I was taken to a place of further explanation that seemed to, I mean, I just, I just fell in love with his philosophy. It just seemed to, and I had a, I had a philosopher friend say this recently when, who I was talking with, that he felt that we are in a place now where evolutionary science, we've, we've come to a place in science where we know so much about the origins of the universe and how things evolve and change, but there's still these things that we cannot explain in science, and that's where so perfectly now Aquinas comes in and can explain 
where things began and what began those things and how things have a teleological end, you know, an end in mind when they're evolving and how that's possible. You know, he his comment was, we're finally at a place where science and the philosophy of Aquinas seem to be working in tandem now. No, I, I think you, I think you're right. Um, you see, look, most of the sciences, I mean, it gets a little complicated because, you know, and it, everybody has respect for the hardcore sciences, whether it's biology, chemistry or physics. I mean, these things have produced, you know, medical wonders, uh, great technology. I mean, who, who can uh, deny that? I mean, I think the sciences are wonderful. The problem with them is not that they're not wonderful and not that they're not powerful. It's just that they can't do everything. Look, you can't do everything with a screwdriver. Sometimes you need a hammer. Now, the sciences, you know, they use the experimental method. They have a hypothesis. They perform experiments to try to confirm or disconfirm the hypothesis. And experimentation is powerful and it's good and it's, and it's empirical. But that method can't be applied to everything. If you're, if you're really sincerely interested about how to treat people ethically and not treat them in a wrong way or not revisit the Holocaust or, or, or evil wars or whatever you have, you can't adjudicate what is good and evil through the scientific method. It won't work that way. That's why we need philosophy for ethics. Similarly, if you want to talk about God, the scientific method is really not going to be that helpful. Not directly, right? If it's true that God exists outside of space and time, well, then you can't put God into a test tube or you can't really test him directly in an experiment. So you need a different way. And questions of existence are something that scientists are bumping up now. Like, for example, physicists can trace the expansion of the universe backwards mathematically to the Big Bang, right? The origin of it all about 13.73 billion years ago. But why is there a singularity at all? Or why is there a quantum vacuum with unstable energy in it? Why does that exist? Now, those existentialist questions, that's in the wheelhouse of philosophy. That's metaphysics. Yeah, that's what I'm going, that's what I'm getting at. And that's what I love. And when I found Aquinas, that's what I felt like, okay, well, here's one way of approaching that. So let's, let's dig into that. I mean, my, so maybe I'll let you, cho you choose. My favorite way is the fifth way, because the way you unpack it in the book, and I think this is especially, uh, it's a fantastic presentation of it. You begin at the very, very beginning. I mean, it, it presupposes, uh, the, the idea of evolution even being possible the way you, I think, approach this. That's the, that's the fifth way, I think, if I'm, if I'm remembering that correctly, but, why don't you decide what, what you want to unpack and just maybe unpack for us one of Aquinas's five ways. Well, if you like the fifth way, we could do the fifth way. Um, all right. The fifth way, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with the fifth way, to be honest with you. I kind of like it, but I find it's difficult because there are just so many modern objections against it that it takes a lot of time to clear those away before we can... Uh, really see what's good about it. But that's okay. So the reason why I focused on the electron being attracted to the proton was twofold. You know, it is true that the mechanisms of evolution, whether it's mutation or natural selection or uh, geographical separation, there's so many different uh, mechanisms of evolution. These things can influence life forms and they can produce changes. I don't want to dispute that at all. So it gets tricky when you try to use um, – when you try to talk about the fifth way in that context. But when you talk about an electron, electrons you know, were around 13 billion years ago. They, uh, 
they predate evolution by a mile, not a mile. I don't know, a billion light years. I don't know, a long time. And um, <laughs> I can't, I can't even fathom uh, <laughs> how, how much they predate. So, so that's the advantage of using them. Nobody can raise the evolution objection to the fifth way if you're talking about electrons, for two reasons. One, it predates evolution, and two, evolution would not be possible if electrons were not appra- uh, attracted to protons. And the reason for this is, you know, if you look at the periodic table of elements, uh, you know, each element has, uh, I mean, there's a few exceptions in the early part of, uh, part of it, but each element has a number of protons and uh, neutrons and, and electrons. And if those electrons are not attracted and form bonds and things, well, you're not going to get the periodic table. In fact, if you just have a bunch of electrons that are attracted to nothing, they're just going to be spinning around like buzzing bees, and we're never going to get any of that periodic table. We're not going to get carbon. We're not going to get other things. We're not going to get planets. We're not going to get slime. We're not going to get life forms. We're not going to get evolution. We're not going to get anything. We're not going to get humans. So so now we talk about the electron. Okay. I would imagine there are some people in the 60s smoking some weed who are like, well, maybe the electrons are conscious, man. Maybe they have some like primal intelligence that we should respect, you know. But um, I find that hard to believe. Uh, I play a lot of guitar in my tube amps with my Les Pauls. I only have one real Les Paul. The others are Japanese 70s copies, but they're beautiful. Anyway, um, and I don't think the electrons are intelligent. Uh, if they are, then I have a whole bunch of little intelligent beings in my left hand, and that's kind of scary. So if we grant that the electrons themselves are not intelligent, then we have to explain why they have this natural inclination to bind to protons. It's almost as if the two are made for each other. But they're not intelligent, so they they couldn't have uh, chosen to have this relationship. The electron doesn't choose to go over there and bind with the sexy proton. It's not how it works, right? So... This brings us to a deep philosophical concept. It's called the final cause. All right? So the, the quick way I can give you with the, the – there's four causes. Think about making a statue, right? The material cause is what you make the statue out of. So if it's going to be a marble statue, then it's out of marble. The formal cause is going to be the shape of a statue because what is a statue? Well, it's, it's a, something that has a three-dimensional shape. If it's only two-dimensional on a canvas, that's a painting. It's not a statue, right? So in the case of a statue, the formal cause is the shape. It's what tells you, oh, that's a statue of a lion, and that's a statue of Superman, and and whatever. So then there's the efficient cause. Now, this gets a little tricky. On the one hand, it's the person who takes the hammer and the chisel and uh, chisels the shape of the lion into the marble. But not anybody can be a sculptor i would stink at it right so actually you have to have that art or that skill of sculpting that you know artisans have within you um that's really the efficient cause of course the skill can't exist floating around it has to be in a human person so the best thing to say is the sculptor the one who has the skill the art of sculpting is the efficient cause it's the he or she is the one who chisels out the form in the stone okay and then there's the final cause the final cause is the sake for all that you did was done. And, you know, it answers the question, why is the, um, why is the sculptor taking a hammer and chisel and carving this shape into the marble? It's because he or she wants to produce a statue. Now, 
even though the final cause sounds like it should come at the end, right, it actually comes first. And you can think about this in your ordinary life, right? When you wake up in the morning, at some point, you got to say to yourself, what am I going to do today? Am I going to go to the park? Am I going to go to the gym and work out? That's the final cause. If you end up going to the gym and working out, it's only because you originally thought, yeah, I should go work out. And then you act. And the final cause is, is what compels you, if you will, to, uh, to do something, right? If you, th- if you are really tired and you, your joints are aching and in pain and you say, yeah, should I go to the gym? And you're like, oh, no, 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 no. Because when you think of the gym, it's like pain and it's, it's no way. I don't want to do that. Then you don't do it, right? So it's only when the final cause has the guise of the good, we see it as good, we see it as desirable, that it goads us into action, if you will, that we, we choose to pursue it. We, we, we could refrain from something good. We do have freedom of choice. Like if we're dieting and we see a beautiful cheesecake, we might refrain. But, but the idea is that we only pursue those things in life that are good. So the final cause is key. Now, I'm going to say more, but being Italian, I could ramble on forever. So any questions so far? <laughs> no, this sounds fantastic so far. Okay. So in human beings, we're intelligent creatures, right? We, we presumably think about what we do before we do it, although sometimes we get drunk or we just don't pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what was I going to say? Yeah. So we can think about what we want to do, right? But the electron's not intelligent, right? I mean, it's really hard to believe that the electron's intelligent. Come on. So the electron can't think about what it's going to do. Now, it still has to have within it, though, the final cause, the inclination to act that way. Because if it had zero inclinations, if the final cause were in no way existing in it at all, then it wouldn't do anything, right? Uh, non-intelligent things, if we observe them, if we we notice that they act in certain ways, right? I mean, honeybees know how to uh, go to plants, collect nectar, make honey, build hives, you know, the whole thing. I mean, and, and so they have their own uh, natural inclinations, right? And they do these things. Well, the electron has this natural inclination. Now, it couldn't have given itself that final cause or that inclination because it's not intelligent. So it can't choose it. It can't think about it. So the question comes... Where did it get this natural inclination? Now, you can't say chance because what happens through chance only happens, you know, occasionally and randomly and, and, and rarely. I mean, you might win uh, in Las Vegas once in a while, but you're not going to win all the time because it's a game of chance and winning happens, you know, rarely. Um, so because the electrons behave so orderly, they, you know, if you shoot them at a, a protons, they will bind. Um, it's not a matter of chance. They do this regularly. So we have to explain why they do this. Well, it, it must be because within them, they have this natural inclination to other things. And these other things, these protons, also in a way have a natural inclination towards the electrons. Now, and it goes even deeper than that. There's the, there's the strength of gravity. There's other things in the universe that just have to be right for life to be possible. Now, how can all these non-intelligent things coordinate with each other, and and the constant of gra- um, and the strength of gravity and all these other things to produce life if they're not intelligent? It seems impossible. It seems instead that there must be some intelligence that is implanted within them, these natural inclinations, so that they can all work together in a huge orchestral concert, like with trumpets and violins, all working together in this symphony. To produce things. And that, that, that's kind of a rough way of thinking of the fifth way. 
Yeah. Oh, I just love that unpacking of it. Thank you for that. You know, I I once I like that it seems to present. Uh, I wouldn't say simple, but a simpler. I mean, if we this is often uh, in in dialogue with atheists, you get to a point where where it seems like presenting God into the argument would make things more ridiculous or more complicated. But I think here's an example where presenting God as what's what's coordinated these things, what's given these things their their cause, their final cause, suggesting that God was the one that did that actually provides a simpler explanation than supposing that all these different things somehow coordinated themselves despite lacking intelligence. Does that make sense? Well, um, in one sense, I don't know if it's necessarily simpler. I mean, they would probably respond back to us something like, well, a universe without God has one less entity, so it's simpler. The atheistic explanation is simpler. But I would say the atheist um, explanation in this particular case with the electrons is, is not a rational explanation. Think about what's going on here. They, they, they would have to, if they want to be atheists, reject that there's any cosmic intelligence behind the orderliness of electrons and protons. So they would have to reject that, right? So that means they would have they would have to, like a chess game, the only move they have is to claim it's a brute fact. But um, that's just like waving your hand and saying, well, it, it just is. There's no explanation for it. In principle, there's no rational explanation for it. It's almost like magic. It's not really science anymore. I mean, and, and brute fact doesn't really seem to work because, I mean – they can't give it the electron can't give it to itself it can't cause its own nature and natural inclinations nothing can be the cause of its own existence or nature so they're just giving up and they're just saying well it just is there's no they're basically saying there's really no rational explanation for it so i just don't think it's as satisfying an explanation yeah oh indeed i definitely agree with you all right well this conversation has has been fantastic i really appreciate you being here and unpacking these and uh, this this topic of Aquinas and science for us, and I I think it was brilliant. Uh, I think you were brilliant. <laughs> I should I should. Oh, you you you're, be, you're being too nice. I was okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I was mediocre then. So, where can uh, people go to find out more about you, or what would you recommend they would read? I mean, this book is fabulous. It's available on Amazon. I should say, <laughs> I guess I'm doing your pitch for you. I should say this book is very affordable on Amazon. I was surprised at how inexpensive it was too. So definitely uh, go ahead. What what do you want to tell the audience about yourself though? It's only nine ninety nine for Kindle on Amazon. Um, by the way, I, I uh, just so the audience knows, I don't, you know, I didn't write this book for money. Okay, I'm I'm gonna be forty seven in August, and uh, most of a philosopher's life is not about you know we don't publish books like Harry Potter where you make millions. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> but um, no, but I, wa- I wanted to write this book because um, – and this is a s- sincere thing. I, I don't want philosophy to, to continue to shrivel up and fade from our culture. I think philosophy is very important. I think science is wonderful, but I think we also need philosophy. And I also um, – you know, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, I struggled with all these questions about God and is there a life after death and a lot of it – caused me a lot of pain and, 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 and worrying and, and, and confusion. So I've, I've kind of tried to uh, help write a book with Matt that I would have liked to have when I was younger to sort of help me think about some of these things. You know, I would say to the readers, you know, you, you don't have to agree with all of it. And certainly I don't want you to just accept what we say. Think about it for yourselves, as Thomas would say. But I think there's a lot here 
to get a lot of juices flowing, to get a lot of ideas um, that perhaps you may not have thought about before uh, in your mind. And I think it's quite accessible because it's basically a story and there's like a little hint of romance going on there. So you might have some fun with it. <laughs> there is that weird undertone, isn't there? Well, look, guy likes girl. Girl is indifferent about guy. This is the story of humanity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I suppose in the uh, in the... The epilogue, he converts to Catholicism uh, so that no, they can no, date, no, right? No, no, no. <laughs> that never happens. No, no, no. First of all, that doesn't happen in the book. And B, I don't want to give away what, what, what twists and turns the two of them as a as a friendship or whatever you want to call it happens. So you'll have to, you'll have to read it. <laughs> That's fantastic. Anything else you want to say? Anything else you're up to uh, coming up in the near future or anything? Uh I have two kids and I'm exhausted. <laughs> I, I am thinking possibly Matt and I have been talking a little bit. I mean, there's there's nothing official here, so there's no real scoop scoop. But we've been talking about maybe writing another book with, with these characters, AJ and Lucy, another dialogue. But I don't know if it's going to materialize. I got a lot of things I got to do now and we'll see. But if, if we do write that book, I'd love to come on and maybe tell you a little bit about what will be in it one of these days. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Well, hey, I'd love to have you back anytime. This was great. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks a lot, Keith. I really enjoyed this and uh, have a great night. Yeah, thanks. You too. God bless. God bless. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation and I have to thank you for listening and thank those who are supporting this show and their prayers and fasting and financial support as well. It's incredible to me that I am blessed to have these conversations with these Catholic thinkers, sometimes way, way above my pay grade, it feels like, and I appreciate this. So thank you to those who are supporting the podcast by leaving reviews, by listening, and through your financial support. Patreon.com slash CordialCatholic is where you can go to find a place to give even $1 a month, which helps the show to keep running and the lights on and pay for hosting fees. Thank you so much. Visit thecordialcatholic.com for show notes and my blog and writing. Send feedback to CordialCatholic at gmail.com or at CordialCatholic on Twitter. I'm at The Cordial Catholic on Facebook, where there is a growing community of people following this work, and I'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch on any of those platforms. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you find it. Leaving ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts is especially important. That helps boost the profile of the show and helps new people to find it. Please share it with your friends, tell your neighbors, listen to this podcast as often as you can, wherever you can, and let others know that it exists. I would be so thankful for you for doing that. So, thank you. Please join me next week with another great conversation for another great conversation, and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcafe. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.